chapter 31, verse 1. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were complaining. Jacob is taking our inheritance away from us. So now that they're separating, they're realizing that their flocks are not doing very good. Jacob's flocks are doing way better. Now they're a three-day journey away from each other, but that doesn't mean there's no like traveling back and forth. The animals are definitely not traveling back and forth, but the family would still be coming back and forth and intermixing because it was not uncommon for families to take their sheep and travel a week, maybe even two weeks away from home, and then circle back around just to find places to graze your sheep in a land that is not very prominent um, with brush and grass and all that kind of stuff. So that nomadic life is not uncommon, but still hanging around some kind of a central headquarters base that they'd be hooking up every, with every once in a while. And so and we're also talking about this is another six-year period. So we're, we're talking about more than 21 years total. And so in that six more years, they're going to be seeing each other. So as they men are mixed, they keep noticing that their animals aren't really growing as much because Jacob is way over there and he's no longer blessing their animals. And meanwhile, his animals increasing drastically and it's the striped and speckled ones that he gets to keep. And so they're now complaining that this son-in-law is getting more of an inheritance from our father than what we're going to get. And they're angry. And they're mad. Yahweh comes to him and says, Return to the land, verse 3, of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So notice that Jacob does not pursue God. He does not pray to God. God comes to him and he says, Go. I'm with you. I've always been with you. I will protect you. It's now time for you to return home. You have your wives. You have your children. You have your flocks. Go home. And so Jacob sent a message. Now, what's interesting is that the one thing Jacob has going for him so far is even though he does not pursue God, he does not pray to God, and he does not praise God, when God comes to him and directly speaks to him, he typically obeys God. He he has a real hard time obeying God in just that general righteous morality sense. But when God comes and speaks to him, he does act. He does act. And so Jacob sent a message for Rachel and Leah and said, come to the field where his flocks were. And there he said to them, I can tell that your father's attitude towards me has changed. So notice he brings them out for some secret conversation. They don't gather in the tent where all the other family members are and could overhear it. They go way out in the field. So they're lost in the the noise making the sheep with the cone of silence coming down on them. And they're going to have this conversation about how to get away from Laban. And he wants to know if they're on board with him. So he says, Your father, attitude towards me has changed, but God of my father has been with me. And he's actually acknowledging that God is the one who's blessed him. You know that I worked for your father and hard as I could, but your father has humiliated me and changed my wages ten times. Now this gives you insight. This is probably why Jake is so angry at Laban all the time. Yeah, he's been deceived twice, but we learn also in this 21-year period, Laban keeps changing his wages over and over and over again. Probably less. You're not going to be angry at bonuses. You're going to be angry at them going lower and lower and lower. And this is happening way more than what we're being given by the narrator. And so 
This is why he's also very angry with Laban. If he has said, the speckled animals will be your wage, then the entire flock gave birth to speckled offspring. So he tells them, I want to get away. Now notice what the wives say. They basically reply in verse 14 and they say, do we still have an inheritance with our father? Hasn't he treated us like foreigners? This is really bad when your daughters speak of you this way. Our father has never valued us in any kind of a way. He has not given us any kind of an inheritance. And hasn't he treated us like foreigners? We don't feel like daughters to Laban. We feel like foreigners and slaves. My dad used me in my marriage to make a profit. They want nothing to do with him. And so notice that we have this broken relationship with the daughters and Laban. We have a broken relationship with the sisters with each other. We have a broken relationship with the wives with Jacob. And we're going to see a broken relationship with Jacob and his sons. There's no real healthy relationship here. And we're only two generations from Abraham. And I made that point last week. Look how it did not take long to go from Abraham, who was such a man of faith that he was declared to be righteous, to a Jacob who has pretty much broken every relationship he has ever had and never really calls on God at all and is trusting in his own superstition and his own ability to deceive in order to get ahead of life. It only took a couple of generations. only took a couple of generations. And so they want to run away. They want to get away. So verse 17, Jacob immediately put his children and his wives on the camels and he took away all the livestock that he acquired in Padama Ram and all of his movable property that he had accumulated. And then he set out towards the land of Canaan to return to his father Isaac. Now, notice that he's running away in the middle of the night, so to speak. Now, one of the reasons he's not talking to Laban first is because every time he talks to Laban, he gets deceived and gypped somehow and enslaved to another like few years of slavery. So he doesn't talk to Laban. But where Laban actually gave himself an advantage by separating a sheep a three days journey away from Jacob has actually given him itself a disadvantage that now Jacob has a three days head start running away. So in the end, it actually kicks him back in the rear because it's going to take him three days. It's going to take him longer than It's going to probably take him a couple of days before he even gets news that Jacob has even left. And then it's going to take him three days just to catch up to where Jacob started, and then he's going to go on. Now, eventually, we do know that Laban does catch up with Jacob before he reaches the promised land because Laban's not coming with family and children and livestock. He's coming with armed men. And they can move a lot faster than a family with women and children and livestock. And so he will catch up, but this has given Jacob a head start. Now, verse 19, while Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole the household idols that belonged to her father. And Jacob also deceived Laban, the Arminian, by not telling him that he was leaving. 
and he left with all he owned, and he quickly crossed the Euphrates River, and he headed for the hill country of Gilead. Rachel, why her dad is gone, steals. So she's stealing, and she's stealing idols. Now, these idols are called teraphim. And the teraphim, and you can Google this on your smartphone. Tons of pictures will pop up. It's kind of spelled like seraphim, except teraphim. Teraphim are little idols, anywhere between like some kind of a G.I. Joe action figure, all the way up to something about the, the old school G.I. Joe action figures, okay, or um, the, the taller ones, about a foot or two high, and they're household gods that you would have. Now, they're the one of two things. They're either images of these household gods that they worshipped, or it could be the images of their ancestors that have died, because ancestral worship is a big part of their culture. And so that they would have these gods on like some kind of an altar, and they would have oil lamps or whatever, and they would offer food and vegetables or whatever as a sacrifice, and they would either be praising and sacrificing these gods within their home, or they would be going to these ancestral gods and praying to them, the ancestors speak to them and give them advice in some kind of a way. Either way, this is not biblical. And these things are the most condemned thing repetitively over and over in Leviticus, and especially Deuteronomy, and constantly repeated over and over again, not even in a practical sense, and the judges and the kings. And so basically, they're, they're just basic carvings in wood or stone and a very simplistic face and, um, and their arms coming in and you'll see a lot of the female ones are actually grabbing their bosoms because it's the idea of blessings of fertility and nurturing and life and that kind of stuff. It's, it's somewhat sexual, but mostly about provision and mostly about fertility and having children. And so this is what she stole. This says everything about her character. This says everything about her character. And so now we have her who Jacob is already not right with God. He's already not praying to him. He's already not seeking to him. And now she's bringing a huge visual spiritual temptation to mislead him all the more. Why does she want these? And she's stealing from her dad. Maybe she feels that her dad owes her some kind of an inheritance. She's already voiced that. She does not have the ability. Jacob obviously is not acting like a spiritual leader of his home, and he's not making any kind of idols, and only a man can make these idols and then have a ritual that blesses them and actually allow the spirit of the gods to enter into them. And so if Jacob's not acting in that way, then the only way she can get him is she takes him from her father. There might be a lot of things growing on her head, but either way, it doesn't matter what her motives are, she does it, period. And she brings him in. So verse 22, three days later, Laban discovered Jacob had left. So he took his relatives with him and pursued Jacob for seven days. He caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Arminian, in a dream at night and warned him, be careful that you neither bless or curse him. Now notice once again, God is honoring his blessing promises to Abraham by blessing Jacob He's honoring his promise to Abraham by making Jacob such a blessing that Laban is noticing God. And now he's also blessed honoring his promises to Abraham by protecting Jacob. And Jacob doesn't deserve protection, yet God is going to protect him. 
But notice that God says, do not curse him or bless him. Now, we, the cursing is obvious. Because God said, those who curse, disdain you, I will curse you. But the blessing, well, the best thing we can do with the blessing is root you back into the king of Sodom. And when Abraham came back with the 318 men of conquering the five, four nations of the north, and he came, and this king of Sodom says, I want to give you a reward. Abraham says, no, I want nothing from you because one, I don't want to be indebted to a pagan. And two, I want God to get all the glory for making me great. And this is probably where God is saying, I don't want Laban to be able to say he made Jacob wealthy. So don't even bless him. Just keep your mouth shut. You can meet him. You can say goodbye to your daughter, so to speak. But other than that, walk away or I will hurt you. And Laban is afraid. Even later, he's going to come to Jacob and says, I was going to kill you, but your God came to me and made me pee my pants, and I'm not touching you. Okay? That's my translation. Verse 25, Laban overtook Jacob, and when Jacob pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead, verse 25, Laban and his relatives set up a camp there too. What have you done, Laban demanded of Jacob? You've deceived me and carried away my daughters as if they were captives of war. Why did you run away secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you off with celebration, complete with singing and tambourines and harps? You didn't even allow me to kiss my daughters and my grandchildren goodbye. You've acted foolishly. Now, his complaint is totally illegitimate. He lobbies two complaints against accusations against Jacob. The first one is, you've carried my daughters off by force, by the point of a sword, as if they were captives in battle. No, 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 Laban. The irony is you've actually been imprisoning and keeping your own son-in-law and daughters captives as if they were prisons of war for the last 21 years. Two, your daughters couldn't wait to escape you. So his first accusation is very flat. But then he turns around and says, I would have thrown a party for you. When have you ever done that? The only party that you threw for Jacob was when you were deceiving him into more years of working. You used a party to deceive him. You could have at least let me kiss my children goodbye. Now that one's legitimate. But that's kind of minor compared to this whole captivity. I would have thrown a party. But then he turns around and he's honest. And he says, I have the power to harm you. But your God said, don't bless or curse. That's the only reason I'm not hurting you right now. Which is ironic because he just got done accusing Jacob of being the warrior and then saying, I would have thrown a party for you. But now he turns around and admits that I'm actually the one who wants to be the warrior in your life. Now I understand that you have gone away. So he kind of admits a little bit like, I kind of understand why you're running away. It's not like we actually like each other. And here comes the second accusation. But why did you steal my gods. Now, the second accusation is legitimate. Even though we do not approve his idolatry, it's still theft. And so the first one is empty. The second one is valid. The problem is Jacob sees both of them as empty because he has no idea that Rachel stole the idols. And so Jacob fires back and says, I left secretly because I was afraid. 
Jacob replied to Laban, I thought you might take your daughters away from me by force. Gee, where did you get that idea? Maybe from the fact that he said I was going to kill you if your God hadn't protected you. Whoever has taken your gods will be put to dead death in my presence. Now here's the irony. He just unknowingly pronounced a death sentence on his favorite wife. The only thing that he cares about is the thing who's actually guilty upon punishable of death according to the law that will come later. And he has just now pronounced a death sentence upon her. And in his presence, rash vows. Now when we get to the book of Judges and Samuel, you'll see rash vows in an abundance that hurt people over and over and over again. And so he swears in ignorance. This is kind of one of those things I mentioned last week that it'd be nice to be able to go back and read the Bible for the first time ever, not knowing what's coming next. And one of the things that the narrator does is we know the end of the story. Rachel doesn't get caught. But the narrator draws it out by having Laban search everybody's tent. And first he goes into the servants' tents. And then he goes into Bilhah's tent and the Zilphah's tent. And then he goes into Leah's tent. And there's this tension drawing out like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, is he going to find out? Is he going to find out? And then he goes into Rachel's tent. And he goes into Rachel's tent and he starts searching. And where is she hiding the idols? And a saddlebag that she's sitting on in her tent. And she says, I am sorry, Father, but I can't get up because I'm on my period. And then he searches everywhere else other than under her, and he leaves. Now, what's going on? First of all, you can get up on your period. Now, I know that some women have extreme complications at different times, but at the same time, you can. But here's what's going on. Your period makes you ritually unclean. It does not make you a sinner. It makes you ritually unclean. So according to the Deuteronomic law, you're unclean for the period of your period, and then you're unclean for the seven days after it comes to an end. During that entire period, you're supposed to bathe yourself on a daily basis. Now, to us, we would think, wow, duh. But to them, they live in an ancient world in a desert community where they probably own one or two changes of clothes in their entire lifetime at one time. They do not have access to water, and when they do, it's gold. You don't waste water on bathing. You hang out with animals pretty much every day, so everybody just, you don't notice it anymore. And they have no concept of bacteria and infection. I mean, they know infection, but they don't know bacteria and all that kind of stuff, and uncleanliness and that kind of stuff. So the idea is to keep the woman clean in that period so that she won't get infection. But two, that it's that's, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that that blood being issued out is a symbol of sin. Now, God in Leviticus is not saying that she's having a period because she's a sinner. It's the idea that dead blood is a symbol of death, which is a result of sin. So not only is it a time where you're cleansing yourself on a biological hygiene level, but it's also a time where it allows you to spend more time repenting and getting right with God and, and spiritually purifying. Most of the purification ceremonies had more to do with giving you something tangible to do while you did something spiritually. We all know that like, 
It's one thing to know something in our head, but it's another thing to actually intentionally think about it and intentionally purify yourself, intentionally repent. And so a lot of times the rituals in the Bible, as you were physically doing some kind of ritual, it made your subconscious reality more conscious that you had to repent. And so the ritual allowed you to bring what it was subconscious into the conscious and make you intentional about actually doing it. Because we always have good intentions to read our Bible and pray and get right with God. But if you had to do a ritual, that would make you more intentional. And so a lot of that was why they were doing it. So which means this, in the, in the ancient world, unclean things always make clean things unclean. So something unclean touches something clean. That thing becomes unclean. And it presents this image that sin taints everything. Death taints everything. So in that sense, if she's sitting on the saddlebag, which is sitting on the idols, the idols have just become unclean. Now, this is what makes Jesus so revolutionary. And so like, who is this guy? Because every single time a priest or a prophet touched something unclean, they became unclean. But Jesus goes up and touches people who are unclean, and he doesn't become unclean, but they become clean. And one of the other reasons why God has laid out the strict, you're like, seriously, it doesn't matter. They're not really unclean. But to make that so strict and so dominant in their life, it's going to make when Jesus comes along such much more of a powerful impact on them when they watch this guy make unclean things clean when he touches them. He's the only person who's ever been able to do that. Okay? And so that's the idea of this whole ritual thing. But this means this. If Laban then touches the idols or searches under her, then he has become unclean, which now necessitates a seven-day ritual. He is the patriarch of his tribe, which means he's both king and priest which means for seven days he's not allowed to go and enter the altar and pray to his gods. He's not allowed to make sacrifices on behalf of his tribe. And he's not allowed to pray and intercede on behalf of them because he has to purify himself for seven days. Now, if it were just you and I, okay, we can't do this for seven days, but we're not the high priest of our tribe. But he is. And so they are held to a higher standard of purification than anybody else. So by this, he's risking a lot. He can call her bluff and be wrong, and he's hurt his entire tribe for a long period of time. Or he can not take the risk and just go home and make new idols. Now this leads us to two conclusions. Either one, he has no idea the idols are there, but he's not willing to touch her because of the uncleanliness. Or he's figured it out, but he's not willing to call the bluff. Now, chances are she's not bluffing because why would she go through the effort to steal them and then taint them, which could bring a wrath from the gods. And she is going to have to throw the gods away because they're now unclean. But at the same time, people who are desperate do desperate things. And they're willing to give up the things that they so sought after when they become desperate. So this is a dangerous bluff to call. Or he just could be completely oblivious to it. So, but it's not like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. That's awkward. 
It's more of a, I don't want to become unclean. And so he walks out. So now Laban's whole accusation against Laban, or Jacob is deflated. Because he knows deep down inside, his first accusation is kind of empty. And now he comes out empty-handed, which means now he has to stand before Jacob with egg on his face, so to speak. He is publicly humiliated against this guy that he threw an accusation at, and yet he finds out that he's wrong. They didn't steal his gods. And even if he thinks maybe Rachel did, he has no evidence of it, so he still is publicly humiliated. And it's at this point that Jacob just launches into him. Now they realize that Laban's lost his weight and ever. Jacob just, this is the therapy and the emotional vomiting that he's been holding in for 21 years, and he just lets it go. You have gypped me, you've changed my wages, you've treated me like a slave, you, you've, oh, da, 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 and just throws it all at him. And Laban can't answer. Because Laban knows that his accusations are empty. And so they make a treaty with each other. At the end of verse chapter 31, we have this treaty being made. This is called a Mizpah treaty because it was made at a place called Mizpah. Now notice the treaty is not two people coming together in an alliance. It's two people coming together to agree not to kill each other. And the treaty goes like this. We're putting two stones here, and I live in the north as Laban, and you are going back to the south where you live as Jacob. So I agree that I will never cross these two pillars into the south. If I do, you have a legal right to kill me. And you promise me that you'll never cross past these pillars into the north, because if you do, I have a legal right to kill you. So basically, we'll agree to be friends as long as you stay away from me and I stay away from you. As long as that happens, we're friends. But if you come into my backyard, I'll kill you. And if I go in your backyard, you have a legal right to kill me. And that's how Jacob's 21-year relationship with Laban ends. This guy has no friends. And he barely has a family. Not a in the authentic, true sense of the word family, not the biological numbers or the family. 